0: Out of respect for the reading of of God's word. This is out of respect for the speaker who is God as he speaks to us through his word. This is from Matthew chapter four. And then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I don't know if you all have noticed this in your walk with the Lord, but I have... Uh, I have noticed this in the church and in my own life, in my walk with the Lord, there seems to be this universal truth. And that is this, that it's easy to trust God in the stuff that's easy, but it's hard to trust God in the stuff that's hard. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Kind of a universal truth, man. And I'm not talking about pagans. I'm not talking about people who don't trust God at all. I'm not even talking about Sunday Christians who come show up for an hour to punch the clock and then go out about their lives for the rest of the week. I'm talking about committed Christians. I mean, people that I know, that I see, that I walk with who are in almost, you know, in all these different ways, these paradigms of faith. When you would be like, wow, that girl is so faithful. She is so in love with Jesus. And she would tell you, I believe in the Bible. Uh, And yet there seem to be these strange mental blank spots where our walk doesn't quite match up with what we believe. For example, I know people and and I'm friends with people who say, I believe the Bible. But when you ask a simple question like, all right then, well, why why are you moving in with your boyfriend who's not Christian? They're just not very happy about that question, (laughs) especially coming from the pastor. Not happy at all. And, uh, you know, there seems there's always a a, a reason. Jesus wants me to be happy. Jesus wants me to be, uh, you know, to be satisfied in life. There's always reasons for it, but it doesn't these glaring inconsistencies. Maybe, uh, you know, I have other friends who would swear up and down on a stack of Bibles that they believe in the power of the gospel, that they believe in the gospel as the central part of our faith, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and the gaining of eternal life. But when you ask, why don't you ever share it with anybody then? <laughs> Not happy. Not happy about it. It hits, get hit in the chest with that. But you know what's even worse than that is I tell myself I believe the Bible. And I tell myself, man, I believe in the gospel. And I do. I really do believe in the Bible. And I really do believe in the gospel. And yet I find in my life there's certain Pressure points, certain areas where I find the same kind of strange mental blank spots, and I find myself acting in ways that is not consistent with what I say. Yeah, man. Why? Because it's easy to trust God in the stuff that's easy, but it's hard to trust Him when things are hard. Uh, and there's, there's the problem in it, right? Because, uh, you know, God knows, God knows that we're going to trust him in the stuff that's easy. We got that. But what he's concerned about is teaching us how to trust him when things are hard. In fact, he's so concerned about it that he manufactures the heart for us to walk in, to give us opportunities to trust him. Now, I don't like that. I don't like that any more than you do. But that's the truth. That's the truth. We see in this passage, Jesus is driven by the Holy Spirit. Mark, Gospel of Mark says that Jesus is driven by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness to be tested for a very unique role in history. As the Savior of the world, Jesus is tested As our representative, as the second Adam, as the true Israel, he is tested uh, and given this unique role to be faithful to the point of death in order to give us his life. Uh, But there's also another truth that comes out in this passage, and that is this that if you are a Christian, God is going to take you to the desert. He's going to take you to the desert. Uh, and so there's something in this for us to understand and learn from too. And so that's really what this first test is all about. It's about trusting God when things are hard. So let's talk about that first. Let's talk about trusting God when things are hard. It doesn't, it doesn't take long to understand that the very cultural air that we breathe outside of the church and uh, often inside the church too, is this idea uh, that you are to trust yourself above everything else, that you are the arbiter of all truth, that you you are to trust your mind, your ability to reason and think things through, or you're to trust your heart, your gut instinct that tells you, you know, what you should do or what you want to be or what you believe that you are, that you should trust those things above everything else. So much so that people often will trust their own very limited expertise over and above experts. Right? There was a, uh, I think one of Napoleon's generals, he talked about four different kind of officers that were in the service. There was the the officers who uh, were brilliant and humble. And those were the guys that were like slated for the top spots of leadership. Then there were the guys who uh, were brilliant uh, and overconfident, or brilliant and reckless. And those are the guys you wanted to lead in combat. They had a place. And then there were the guys who were uh, just uh, kind of stupid and underconfident, and they would weed themselves out. And he said, the ones you have to watch out for above all costs is those who are stupid and overconfident. <laughs> Because those are the guys that going to wreck the show. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> well, guess what? <laughs> That's us, right? <laughs> they got a name for this now. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. You heard of this? The Dunning-Kruger effect is this type of cognitive bias that causes people to overestimate their own knowledge or their own ability precisely because they don't know enough to know they don't know nothing. <laughs> So they're like, oh yeah, I could beat the Russian chess master. Or Everybody knows what the president should do, how we should fix the economy, how we should stop the pandemic, uh, how, we sh- you know, how we should go about foreign policy in Ukraine. Everybody's an expert because you got Google and you got a computer. Uh, but that's actually, there's a word for that. Or a, synd- a, a, a syndrome. A syndrome? Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, And that's because we've been taught since birth that you are the arbiter of all wisdom and knowledge and power, and that by your ability to reason, you can find truth all by yourself, even without any input from experts. Uh, And as silly as that is to do with people who are truly experts in their field, it's even sillier that we do it to God, but we do it all the time. (laughs) Uh, even though it's ridiculous, from that fateful moment in the garden, where even Adam were presented with the, the the choice to trust their own wisdom, knowledge, and power, or trust the wisdom, knowledge, and power of God who created them in all things, being uh, stupid and overconfident, <laughs> and trusting ourselves, and trusting our minds, and trusting ourselves over God comes as naturally as drinking water. It's one of the reasons why it's so hard to trust God when things are hard. So what's happening here in this passage, right? This is, this is it's, in, in our translation it says it's a temptation that Jesus was sent out to be tempted by the tempter, the devil. If you look the word up, really it's a, it's a word that really means a test. It's probably better. Probably better. Um, a better uh, interpretation of it is to test. It's to. It's to press somebody, so hard that they make a mistake in order uh, to complete a process of testing or a process of examination. Uh, we see this in the New Testament all the time. God's talking about like testing us, like dross. Paul you know talks about, being tested. Um, And the test is not ultimately from the devil. The devil is just the tool here. Just like in the story of Job, God used the devil as a tool to test Job. But this is the spirit that's driven Jesus into the desert to be tested. This is the father using the devil as a tool, the devil controlled by the father in order to test the son. And what kind of test is it? It's not just about Jesus like using his power uh, per se, because you know in a minute, he's going to turn 1,000 gallons of water into wine, and a little bit later, he's going to feed 5,000 people from five loaves of bread. So obviously just making bread out of nothing or making bread out of something else. That's not the problem. The problem the problem is about using his power to derail what God was doing with him in the wilderness. The problem was to derail the process, the testing, the purpose, the plan of the Father that he was undergoing in, in the wilderness. How do we know that? Because he quotes Deuteronomy 8. What does he say? Man, the devil says, hey, man. If you're the son of God, that really probably should be since you're the son of God, the devil's not like questioning that. I mean, we just, you know, God just spoke from the heavens. This is my son. It's not, our, you know, so the devil's all like, look, you're the son of God. You's, you're hungry. It's been 40 days. Things are hard right now. Jesus had every physical appetite, was, was tempted in every way that we were, felt all the pain and struggle and anxiety of all of those things in the same way that we do, and he's like, "Look, you're hungry. Why don't you turn these rocks into into bread to eat some bread, man? You could totally do it." And Jesus says, quoting from Deuteronomy eight, from the law, "Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God," which comes from the story of Israel being in the wilderness. And the story is about how God was disciplining Israel in the wilderness. Not disciplining, when I think discipline, I think punishment, right? I mean, that's probably because of my background. Can I get an amen? But discipline in the sense of training, like discipline in the sense of training yourself to play the piano so you have the freedom to play the great classics. That kind of discipline. He's disciplining them in the desert israel an act of loving discipline right training them up into righteousness training them that they can trust in him in the most vital and crucial parts of life even when things looked dismal they could continue to trust in him and he would have their back Uh, and that was the test it's the lesson The lesson is that nothing about that situation that Jesus found himself in was a mistake. Nothing about it was a mistake. God had purposefully manufactured that particular test for Jesus to put him in a rough spot for for his good. Will he trust God? Will he derail the lesson? Man, that's a hard lesson. I don't know about you, my go-to when it gets hard is, this is a mistake, or, <laughs> you know what I really do? I say, God is punishing me. And I so like, sort of through the Rolodex over the last two weeks, and I'm like, okay, which sin in particular was it? that brought this upon me, this, this, this terrible plague upon me, how can I figure what that sin is, maybe confess it, do some makeup work, do some extra credit makeup work, maybe some extra quiet times, a little extra Bible reading, like great, you know, uh, do some volunteer work uh, down at the ladle, so I can clear that off my record, self-atone, and then I can get back to normal. God doesn't want me to get back to normal. He wants me to get to obedience and to trusting him even when things look dismal. To trust him even when all the appetites of my body, bent and broken and straight alike, are just screaming out to be satisfied. God says, no, you can trust me through this. He wants to get us there because that's, that's freedom. Um, in fact, it's such a hard lesson that nobody does it. It's such a hard lesson, nobody can do it consistently and that's our problem. That's the big problem in life, is that the Bible says that salvation comes from perfectly trusting God every minute of your life. And our obedience is spotty at best. Spotty at best. That's the problem. So what's the solution to the problem? Well, the solution to the problem is that there was somebody who did pass the test. And Jesus passes the test to give us his life. That's the second part. Listen. Um, One of the cool things about the Bible, when you start understanding how the Bible works how it's put together. God, like, does these dramatic layerings. Kind of like Easter eggs in movies. You know what an Easter egg is in a movie where a, uh, a director will, like, create a scene that um, is reminiscent of or looks a lot like a scene in, other, in a different movie in a different scene to kind of call your attention to it. Uh, I just saw this video of Quentin Tarantino, like, 20 or 30, like, Easter eggs that he put in his film that were, when you put them side by side, I didn't even notice him watching the movies, but in, in side by side, you're like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. For people who are paying attention, those scenes call your mind back to another scene. And that's what's going on here. If you're paying attention, this should remind you of another scene where the same devil says the same thing to somebody else. In Genesis chapter 3, right? The very first test of the very first man, Adam. It's not a coincidence. What happens? You know, what does God say? God says, don't eat of the tree. And the devil says, go ahead and eat, man. Go ahead and eat. You can't trust God. God's holding out on you. God's lying to you. Go ahead and eat that, and you'll become like God. Same issue, right? It's not about the food. It's not about the forbidden fruit in and of itself. It's a matter of trust. Are, is Adam going to trust God more than he trusts himself? And what happened? First Adam failed. And by his failure, uh, we are all, everyone descended from Adam is dragged into that, what we call the estate of sin and misery. We're going through the the catechism with my kids right now, so the estate, meaning a state of being, of sin, meaning we can't, our nature is so corrupted that we just sin naturally, and misery, which really it comes from, that in the confession that that was put in, it was from a German word that meant a specific kind of misery. It meant homesickness. It meant knowing that we belonged somewhere else and being cast out of it, and longing with all of our heart to get back to that place. And what's the problem? The problem is we try to get back to that place by trusting ourselves and not trusting God. And it makes us go further and further and further away. But Paul, what does Paul call Jesus? He calls him the last Adam." Why? Because Jesus was given the same role, the same mission as the first Adam to perfectly obey God. Jesus perfectly obeys God. God Jesus trusts God even when it's hard, 100 percent, and he wins everything back that Adam lost, so that we are given life, we are given uh, eternal life and saved by what Jesus has done by passing this test. Uh, if you're paying real close attention, there's another Easter egg from another scene, Israel in the Wilderness, where God gives them this manna, right, which literally means, what is it? And that's what they're supposed to eat for 40 years. What is it? I don't know about you, but every time somebody's handed me some food and my first response was, what is it? I, it wasn't good. And what do they do? Same issue. Where are you gonna trust that God has a purpose in this for your good? And instead, Israel just whines about meat, whines about the leeks and the onions in Egypt, forgets all about how they were enslaved and miserable, and convinces themselves that God has just led them out in the wilderness to die, no other purpose. Man, doesn't that sound familiar when things get hard? I forget, forget, it's like amnesia. I forget that God is good. I forget everything he's done in the past and I just think to myself, he's trying to kill us. He's just trying to kill us. That's what's happening here. What's the big idea, right? Well, Matthew and Hosea and Isaiah, they all speak about Jesus as being the true Israel as being the perfect Israelite, the Israelite who is perfectly faithful to God the way Israel was supposed to and then acts as Israel uh, as, as a representative for Israel and he passes the test and then his win God gives to us by trusting in Jesus. We're not saying you trust uh, in uh, you know, his sayings, you trust in his wisdom. It means we trust in what he did as a representative when we trust in him, God gives us his righteousness. He takes away our sin. And that's what salvation is. Uh, that's what it's all about. Jesus passed the test of life for us. And he gives us his life. That's, that's the solution. That's the only possible solution to our spotty obedience. Uh, and listen, lest you think that was an easy thing. Lest you think that was an easy thing. I had a friend once, he was like, yeah, I don't know, crucifixion, not super impressed. Uh, if I was offered the same reward, I, could total, I would totally do it. Well, he's not taking into account Jesus' perfect life and the pressure Listen, Jesus was tempted in every way that we were tempted, except that we're only tempted to a certain point. And then what happens? Snap, you break. So we only know temptation up to a certain point. Jesus never broke. He carried the weight, carried the pressure, endured the pressure. His entire ministry, these are just preliminaries. These are preliminary tests and then Jesus goes out into his ministry and he's tempted in all these same ways over and over again by Satan the whole time all the way up to literally being obedient to the point of death, death on a cross to where he's tripping the night before, praying to God, is there any, (laughs) Maybe maybe there's something we didn't think about. Maybe there's some other way. And God says, no, that's the only way. And he went through with it. Why? There's probably a lot of reasons we don't know why, but at least one reason why Jesus was able to accomplish that, why he was able to trust God through the hardest, worst stuff ever is because he had the ultimate eternal perspective. He understood exactly what was going on. He understood he could you know, give up this bread because in giving up that bread, in giving up his life for us, he was going to become living bread that millions would feed off of. So much better. And that's why we're so short-sighted. We think either it's a mistake or God has forgotten us or God is trying to kill us and we don't have that perspective that all these tests, all the hardship we go through is actually something good. It's blessing. It's blessing in the midst of the desert and that's the the last thing. Jesus, he gives us his life, he gives us eternal life, so that's settled. That's settled. But he also blesses us while we're in the desert. Uh, You know, and like I said earlier, if you're a Christian, God's going to take you into the desert. He's going to take us in the desert. But he takes us into the desert for our own good. Think about, I want you to think about, let's think about real quick how important and pervasive food is to everyday life. What what kind of role does food play in your life? I mean, maybe maybe I don't even want to get honest about that answer, right? Food is such an important part of life. Uh, It's not just that food sustains us physically. It's not just that food gives us strength. It's also that food like gives us satisfaction, that food gives us pleasure, that food gives us comfort. Food is the place that we gather for community. We have all these different kind of words for food. We have fine food, we have nutritious food, fast food, canned food, comfort food, snack food. We gather for family family meals. We have lunch meetings. We have dinner dates. We build breakfast nooks in our house. What does that tell you? That life... Human life literally revolves around food in our comfort, in our satisfaction, in uh, our spaces, in our community. It's like one of the most central things that we do. Uh, but as entertaining and as fun as food can be, it's not just entertainment or fun. If you don't eat, eventually you get weak, and then you get sick, and then you die. So it's serious. And yet, uh, Jesus is laying out this principle. He's saying, look, if you're faced with a choice between remaining, by trusting, which, a, a, a choice between trusting God, which means remaining obedient to his word, that's what that means, discipline, being a disciple. When you're faced with a choice between trusting God, Or eating food, even when you're at the point of death, it's better for you to trust God. That's kind of crazy. That's kind of crazy that he would say that. Uh, And he doesn't mean, when he says, and when he's telling us, it's better to trust God. That doesn't mean that it's better for God. It means it's better for us. Um, it's better for you to trust God. It's more important for us to continue to trust God in his word than it even is for us to take in life-sustaining nourishment. And there's a lot of, lot of good reasons why we should trust God. Some obvious ones. God is clearly smarter than we are. God is wiser than we are. God is more powerful. God actually like created the entire universe and cosmos that we live in, including us, and so he has a better understanding of how those things work. <laughs> uh, he's good. He's trustworthy. Post-cross, post we never have any reason to doubt whether or not God is good or God is trustworthy. Uh, a really good reason that we should be obedient and, and trust God is 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 out of a sense of gratitude and love for what God has accomplished for us in salvation. And we're big on that, right? And, and, and for good reason, right? We should be grateful. The biggest problem anybody ever faces, death is solved. No one here, uh, we will all die physically, but no one here is going to die spiritually. No one here that believes in Jesus is going to die spiritually. The biggest problem we have looming on the horizon is taken care of. And we should be grateful. And we should act in gratitude for that. And we should act in love to God for what he's done in that. And yet, you know, whenever I do that, there's always this little thing in me that's like, man, I sure hope God appreciates what I'm doing right now. I sure hope God appreciates all this gratitude But it doesn't work like that, man. God will not be a debtor to his people. That means that, it means we give God nothing. There's nothing we can give God except our obedience and our love and our trust. But even that, in the economy of creation, is all, is all for our blessing. Our, that obedience is God training us and getting us to trust in the fact that we can let go of all the poison and death that we love to play with and instead start living in the power of the Spirit to begin to walk in it like we talked about last week, right? What if, what if we thought about those super hard spots of obedience as something that's better for us instead of something to be endured or something we we try to get through as fast as we can so we can get back to normal? What if we thought about those moments when it's super hard and everything in your body is screaming to do what you know is going to give you comfort and satisfaction right now? What if we... What if we really believed that those moments were opportunities, that those moments were blessings for us, that it was better for us to continue to trust God? What if trusting God is really an opportunity for us to be entrusted? Stick with me here. Listen, it's just principle, right? Jesus is laying down. He didn't need to make bread because he knew he would become the bread of heaven. Life for millions, holding out way better. Uh, there's a principle in the Gospels that Jesus continually teaches that if you're faithful in a little, God rewards with faithfulness in much. Now, a lot of that is tied up in the eternal kingdom, a lot of that is tied up in, in salvation, right? But not all of it. For faithful in little, God rewards with faithful in much. And to be, what is discipline? Discipline was training Israel, that's us, for something. To hold on to that, trust in God against the protests of all of our physical desires. Not God. Testing us, not for him to see what we're going to do, God knows everything, but for us to see it, for us to see, for us to see what might be possible. Look, there's too much in the New Testament, there's too many verses. James, for example, count it all joy when you face trials. Uh, James says, we ask, we pray for God to give us things, and we don't get it because we're going to use it selfishly. And yet God places these desires in our heart of things that we want to do, things that we want to accomplish, that we want to be entrusted with, that for the most part right now, the little parts of those things that we have are used selfishly. Use it all for ourselves. And I am preaching to myself right now. Preaching to myself. Praying that God would give, me, give us more money so that we'd be more comfortable and yet a ton of that money we use selfishly already. Uh, <laughs> you know, I spent 18 years of my life Trying to be a rock star. God had like given me these talents and abilities, and I spent all that time using them as selfishly as you could possibly imagine to glorify myself. And you know what happened? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> In just to the same cycle of 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 breakdown. Man, one of the saddest things, one of the saddest things ever is friends I have that are continually on repeat in the same cycle, they're in the same test over and over and over again and they've been there for decades because they just refuse to trust that what God is calling them to is better so that God would entrust them with more. Terribly sad. Story my life, right? Had no idea. You know, the, the idea of trusting God in the middle of that was like somewhere below the list of like, you know, light myself on fire, as far as like, you know, wise things to do. And yet, as it turned out, would I trade, would I trade what I get to do now in the kingdom for all of that? Not in a million years. What God had planned for my life was so much, so much better. And I'm still like, I'm, listen, I'm still, in that, I'm still in that battle, still in that struggle of trusting God, letting go of all these things that I want to use selfishly and entrusting him with those things and entrusting, entrusting myself to him, letting go of all these things that I think must be in order for me to be okay. And God always comes through always comes through with something better. See, there's a principle. God will not give us power in order to destroy ourselves with it or others. He loves us too much for that, but what if God wants something more for us? What if he has some purpose for us or for you in the kingdom that would literally blow your mind if you thought about it, or if you lived in it for a single day. And every hard thing that's in life is really an opportunity to trust God so that we might be entrusted with it. That's something to think about. Concluding, our salvation, eternal life, has been one for us in Christ. And yet at the same time, as we walk through the valley of death, God brings us into the desert to start shedding the pain and suffering, the things that we cling to, in order to allow us to begin experiencing the beauty and the quality of that eternal quality life now. And that's a blessing, amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promises that you make to us in the gospel. That we belong to you and that will never change. And we thank you also, Lord, for the way that your spirit works in and through us in the world. Lord, all your promises are good and true. You promise that you are bringing us out of death and into life, that you will give life to our mortal bodies, that we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Lord, you are a God who loves us so much, you won't won't leave us to to our selfishness and our silliness and our sin. You'll cycle us through those lessons, Lord. And I pray... I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be full of every good reason to trust you. That we, our hearts would be b- bursting with gratitude for what you are, for who you are, for what you've done for us in Christ. And that that gratitude would produce the kind of joy that sin never could in our lives and that we would recognize that and be even more grateful for it. And we pray, Lord, that in the hardship comes When the hard things come, Lord, we pray that rather than thinking uh, that you're punishing us, rather than thinking that you made a mistake, that we would entrust ourselves to you and the process that you are bringing us through, knowing that you are good, knowing that you are faithful, and knowing that you never, ever, ever take anything away from us that you don't replace with something better. God, how many times do we have to learn that lesson Help us to trust you, Lord. We pray that you would help us to trust you and that you would blow our minds and prove to be everything we ever hoped you would be. In Jesus' name, amen.